Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Two questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? And the second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Hello and welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap from what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. Thank you for listening to Restoring the Soul. Did you know there is an epidemic of narcissism in the church? Whether it's in the pulpit, lurking behind the scenes, or embedded deep within the organizational systems of the church, narcissism is running rampant and needs to be addressed. Today's podcast will do just that. In fact, the next two episodes deal with narcissism in frank yet hopeful terms as Michael John Cusick spends time with Chuck DeGroat, discussing his latest book, When Narcissism comes to the church. Chuck is uniquely qualified on this topic as he has been counseling pastors with narcissistic personality disorder as well as those wounded by narcissistic leaders and systems for over 20 years. He knows firsthand the devastation narcissism leaves in its wake and how insidious and painful it is. You know, it's one thing to be able to point out someone's faults and identify where people are broken. But as you'll hear, Chuck offers hope for narcissists themselves, not by any shortcut, but by the long, slow road of genuine recovery, possible only through repentance and trust in the humble gospel of Jesus. We all need to lean in and listen closely over the next two podcasts. So without any further delay, here's your host, Michael John Cusick. Well, Chuck DeGroat, it's good to actually see you. Last time we we talked on a podcast, we had not met face-to-face, so welcome. Thank you. It was really a treat uh, last May to meet you and spend time together. But uh, here to talk about your book, which is really a significant work. It's... um, it's what what I believe is a landmark book, and without being narcissistic myself, referring to my endorsement of your book because I was privileged to to read. Um, Yours was a landmark endorsement. <laughs> well, I, I just want to say this: that I, I, from the bottom of my heart, I, I think that this book is uh, the most important book on leadership to come along since Henry Nouwen's book, The Wounded Healer, which, as a very young believer. Um, I read, and it, and it was one thing that helped me make sense of my own life, and being a wounded healer is one of my core values. So yeah. 
I just want to say, well done. And this book's been 20 years in the making. Tell me about how it was 20 years in the making. Yeah, it's interesting because Wounded Healer was significant for me too, uh, back when I was an arrogant seminary student in the mid nineties. And and I had a professor call me out. One of the first books he put in my hands was the Wounded Healer. And so uh, that, yeah, that cast a vision that also, when you read that, uh, I think if you really internalize the Wounded Healer, and now in his entire ministry, you develop a bit of an eye for narcissism. And back in the mid-90s, where I was in a kind of hyper-reformed world of church planting and theological arrogance and certainty, there, there was a lot of narcissism, not least in me. And so I often say that the, the book doesn't begin by pointing the finger. In a sense, I had to really look at myself and my own story, how I was showing up. Uh, and I, I'm thankful that back then I had people in this counseling program who were able to say, uh, Chuck, listen, you're showing up as arrogant and intimidating and bullying, and uh, it hurts. And so it begin. It, it really started with me. I'll make it all about me, Michael. <laughs> if you're writing a book on narcissism, we might as well make it all about yeah, right. you. Or, well, it can't be all about you because it's all about me. But I, that's one of the things I really appreciated about the book is that this is not a clinical um, evaluation or treatise on narcissism. You really share like you just did out of your own story. Um, and there's a real compassion and tenderness toward the hypothetical people that you're speaking of. And I know that those hypothetical people come out of a composite of folks that you've worked with, but you know, it's really easy to speak on this subject as kind of an us and them and that they, the narcissists are over there. Um, I'm wondering, first of all, I have not said the title of the book, and I know that our, our uh, producer, Brian, will have done that at the beginning, but, but for those that skipped through that, the book is called When Narcissism Comes to the Church, Healing Your Community from Emotional and Spiritual Abuse, uh, and it's an InterVarsity Press book. But as we jump in a little bit deeper, can you give a working definition of narcissism, and you speak of it as a continuum? Yeah. Well, if you look at the DSM-5, which is really like the psychology Bible, you know, that gives a definition, there are a few characteristics that are uh, that are pretty striking. One is grandiosity. Uh, this is someone who, at least in, in this kind of manifestation of narcissism, likes to be on stage, uh, likes attention. Uh, 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 that's one piece of it. That's an important piece. But uh, one of the things I learned, again, 20 years ago was that the second piece is just as important, and that's a lack of empathy. Um, narcissists don't show up in a way that demonstrates in any way that they're attentive to what's going on in you. They can fake it sometimes, but there's not a real sense that they get, they, they can really be with another. Uh, and then we talk about impairments of identity and intimacy. That's, that just means that their relationships, uh, their vocation will be probably volatile in one way or another. Uh, now, the spectrum that you're talking about me- means that when we talk about narcissism, we can talk about it uh, in, in really in three main ways. And this comes from a man named Theodore Milan, who created an inventory that I've been using for a decade now to do psychological assessments. The Milan Clinical Multi-Actual Inventory. Inventory, yeah. And it's so helpful. Uh, you know, he talks about narcissistic style, type, and disorder, which means that you can have traits of narcissism uh, but not be diagnosably narcissistic personality disorder. 
so that folks like me who uh, write books and speak publicly sometimes and stuff like that, probably a little bit of narcissism uh, in there, but it might not be diagnosable narcissistic personality disorder. And then you talk about covert and overt narcissism as well as a, a vulnerable kind of narcissism. Can you comment on that? Yeah, yeah. Really, the primary distinction is between grandiose and vulnerable narcissism. Uh, and, and so, and covert and overt are really kind of subcategories of that, that probably too much to get into right now. But uh, grandiose is that on stage narcissism that we were talking about. But vulnerable narcissism often isn't in the spotlight. It's a more subtle kind of narcissism. It can look more passive aggressive. And in that sense, it's pretty insidious. Uh, I, I often talk about examples of small church pastors in rural towns where their sense of specialness is not because we've got the biggest, the biggest stage in town and the most reach, but it's because we are the pure church in the town. We're theologically orthodox. We've got it figured out. And so that can be pretty insidious. They're, they're the ones that on the, the sign in front of the church, they may declare the particular translation of the Bible that they use. Yeah, that's right. That's and all, right. Their, all their particular doctrine. And, yeah. and also my observation is that that uh, person may have this uh, covert narcissism just because they're the singular leader, you know, and it, and it may be small, but it all revolves around them. That's right. That's right. They're the singular leader in a small church with a special small group of people and a special theology, and we are the elect and you're not. And so there's always this sense of, uh, I, I, I went to a church like this uh, growing up on Long Island, and it was a Dutch Reformed church. And when we walked in, we didn't really know that we, we fit here, but when we walked in, they asked for our names, and we said we were De Groot, and he says, De Groot, you are now a part of the pure church. Aha. <laughs> and we should have run for the hills, but we, we stayed around a little bit. You touch on this in the book, but um, one of the things that I found helpful is thinking about narcissism as pathological or unhealthy self-love. And because you've written other books, Wholeheartedness, uh, where you do touch on this idea of needing to love ourselves and that that's actually a healthy and biblical thing. Talk about how it's unhealthy or pathological self-love. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I think it's important to start with the idea that self-love is actually significant and important to us, right? I mean, it's actually a quality of, of a healthy human being, an ability, a human being that is self-aware, empathetic, uh, that can feel what other people feel. Uh, I talk about healthy narcissism. Sometimes I use the example of the seven-year-old who, you know, says, daddy, daddy, look at me, I'm doing a cartwheel, you know? Pathological narcissism is if at the age of 45, you're still saying, look at me, look at me, I'm doing a cartwheel, I'm preaching a sermon. And so, so that it becomes pathological when we become sort of fixated on our image, fixated on our reputation, on our success, on our platform, on our influence. It's kind of innocent and kind of beautiful when there's, there's a healthy self-love. You know, I, I grew up in a tradition where, uh, you know, I would have been, uh, I would have been kicked out if I would have talked about self-love, you know. Uh, it's all about how bad you are, how insignificant you are, how broken you are. Uh, self-love is actually a quality of a healthy human being. Pathological self-love is a, is a problem. One of my professors years ago in my theological training said that someone came to him with this idea in the late 80s of self-love. And he said, I don't want to hear about that. That's exactly the problem 
with the church and with humanity today is that we love ourselves too much. Yeah. And uh, I'm glad we're talking about this because it's not a small point. Um, and one can't take in the love of God if right. they don't have some sense of uh, being loved themselves. Yeah. Love the Lord your God as you love yourself, right? And and kind of going back to Henry Nouwen, I think one of the things that Nouwen taught me, probably taught you, taught a whole generation, was that we are the beloved. And if we live in that sense of the beloved, we're far less prone to going and looking for it someplace else uh, so that we can get up on the stage and speak, but we don't need the affirmation of the people. Uh, We can offer what we have as a gift to others. That that comes out of an overflow internally because of being the beloved, as opposed to using the audience or the organization or an interaction to fill oneself up. That's right. So underneath this, um, unhealthy self-love and underneath narcissism, there is a wound. And I love how, I think it was in the first or second chapter, you started out telling the story of a little boy and a little girl. And, you know, that immediately shines the light on the wound underneath this. So talk about that. Yeah, I sort of spread this throughout the book. In fact, there's another chapter where I talk about shame and rage in the narcissistic pastor's life. Uh, I, I want to hold these two in tension because I think it's really easy to demonize the narcissistic leader, pastor, CEO, politician, etc. And and hold, holding this kind of dual dynamic uh, allows us to have some empathy that uh uh, that there is likely a story, and you know this, I know this, because we've worked with a lot of folks like this. There's a story that goes back a long way uh, to a season of life, to a day when he or she was bullied, abused. And, um, and, and the way I like to say it is, is that they didn't wake up one morning uh, deciding to become a narcissist, right? That slowly and subtly and subconsciously, they developed a thick armor. And from this thick armor, they could only live from a uh, from a place of defensive self-protection. And so all they can do is sort of volley or, or lob, uh, lob grenades over the self-protective wall at others. And it's really quite sad. Uh, that protective wall means that they're invulnerable, so they're incapable of receiving love and giving love. Uh, but there's an ashamed little boy or little girl behind that large wall. It's so important to say, uh, or to come back to what you just said, that the person with this kind of narcissism is incapable of receiving love, not just that they're grandiose and prickly and they lack empathy, but that they can't even take love in. And I'm reminded of the the origins of the word narcissism, uh, that narcissus was a, a Greek god mythologically and was walking by the pond and saw his reflection and fell in love with his own image. Yeah. And we, we may be familiar with that story, but what a lot of people may not know, and I only countered this a couple of years ago, is that there was another mythological goddess by the name of Echo. And Echo was off in the distance behind Narcissus, calling out his name, offering love. And because he was preoccupied with his own image and sense of self uh, that needed to be inflated, he wasn't able to take in the call of love from Echo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's why we do our work, right? I mean, that makes me, even you saying that right now makes me so sad because I think about the men that I've sat with who I've offered love to, right? I've been there. I've been present to them. I've been their therapist to their pastor. And there's a block. They simply can't receive it. 
And there are times when I've gotten really close. And I remember working a few years ago with a, a pastor of a really large mega church. And we came so close. And I remember he let me in for a little sliver of time to a moment in his life at about seven or eight years old. And he was in tears. And, and uh, he wept in that session. When he came back the next session, he said, that will never, ever happen again. He put the wall back up. And uh, basically was saying, I will not receive your love. I can't trust you. I can't trust anyone. He literally said that or that was his posture? That was his posture. Uh, he did come in and say, I will never, ever let that happen again, meaning I will never, ever let that last session happen again. I'll never, ever be vulnerable in that way again. I'll never, ever let you see me cry again. But there it was, the little boy, right, hidden behind the wall. He showed himself. Uh, and, and then I, I suspect in that week after, he was so ashamed. He felt so exposed and, and likely didn't trust me to hold it. And the sad irony of this is that we are all desperate for love, uh, far more desperate than we let ourselves realize. And particularly the narcissist is desperate for love. It's often obvious to people, but they, they simply can't take it in. Yeah, desperate, but they can't take it in. And so they'll find a thousand ways uh, to, to get the love that they need. Um, they'll write the book. Uh, they'll stand on stage. They'll build a large church. They'll plant another one. They'll have a network of, of uh, leaders underneath them. But uh, they're still starving for love. And, uh, you know, in the work that we do, I think we get a unique glimpse into just how empty they are. That uh, Some of us, uh, I know for a, a good amount of time, I looked at some leaders like that and I admired them. I thought, I want what they want. Uh, but then you realize that they're just really desperately unhappy and empty. Yeah. And when you talk about that, they, they get some of the love that they need through preaching or somehow being great or developing a program, that it may be admiration. It may be um, uh, adulation, even care, but it's based on what they've done. It's based on their performance. Yeah. You know, what's, what's the triad that you quote in the book from now in spectacular uh, powerful and relevant. Yeah. Spectacular, powerful, and relevant, which correspond to Matthew 4. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it, this is Henry Nowen talking about the temptations in the wilderness, you know, and, it, and he says these are universal temptations for each and every one of us. Um, there is there's the temptation to be spectacular, powerful, and relevant. We want to be seen. We want to be known in the world. We want to be powerful in the world. And it's really, it, it's really uh, the opposite of, of what we call vulnerability transparency, honesty, being known, fragility. Uh, in my book, these are good words, you know, but when you're scared of your own fragility, of your own brokenness, when you're fearful of your own shadow, uh, of course, you're going to train yourself on gaining the most power, the most likes on Facebook or social media. And then you can't be loved in that leadership role for who you really are, yeah. But it becomes a transaction of I give you greatness, spectacular, and you give me adulation, or you, you come and fill the seats at my church. Thomas Merton talks about the false self a lot, uh, particularly in New Seeds of Contemplation. And he says the false self is an illusion. It's, a, it's a, impossible for the false self to be known. And that's the sad thing is that uh, some folks feel like they know these pastors. They, they can show a level of trans transparency even. Uh, I use the word vulnerability in the book. It's just a kind of simple word that I created to talk about a faux vulnerability. Uh, they can make you think that they know you. 
And, and so people revere them. They feel known by them. They feel like they know them. And, and yet they'll ultimately disappoint. Andy Crouch once told me that every time he gets up to speak, he also is a musician, um, that, that he is very intentional about being vulnerable and taking a risk each time. And um, I asked him what that looks like, and he said that he will literally go off in a direction or a rabbit trail that he hadn't planned on saying, or he'll, he'll sing a song spontaneously, that, that he models vulnerability. But more yeah. than that, that he allows himself to not rely purely upon his gifting. And I thought that was very powerful. Yeah, there's something to that. I think I, I teach, uh, I teach in a seminary program where I've got to record a lot of lectures. And, uh, when I record lectures on the fly, I make a number of mistakes. And, uh, one of the things I've become known for is, is, uh, starting and stopping. I don't edit my lectures. Uh, I hope you don't edit this podcast. Uh, sometimes when we're speaking, we stick our foot in our mouths, we make a mistake, we stutter, we, and I drop, think we live in a world. Drop the F-bomb, something like that. Yeah, not me. You do that, but I'd never do that. Uh, but but this is a part of, of revealing to others that we're human, you know, and that's what this is really all about. I think uh, narcissism dehumanizes us. Uh, we're in the season of Lent right now, and I love Lent because Lent reminds us that we are dust, and to dust we shall return, that we're limited, right? And so because we're limited, we make mistakes, we fumble, we, uh, we disappoint people, and that's just life. Uh, I'm hoping that one of the things that this book does is it invites leaders, pastors, people in ministry, uh, and hopefully even more broadly, people outside of ministry, to live a life of vulnerability before others. And that means being seen. And that, that as you indicated before, that, t- that means taking a risk, right? That's what Andy Crouch was saying. It means taking the risk to... Uh, be seen as as uh, less than perfect, and that's hard for some of us. Back to the idea of vulnerability, which is that that false vulnerability. Yeah. Um, you, you know this, and I know this, but we can have our canned stories where we can be vulnerable professionally. You know, and I'm publicly a sex addict and an adulterer and an alcoholic, and I can go somewhere and tell stories about 25 years ago or 20 years ago. And that can be very canned and people can say, wow, he's so vulnerable. And so again, this may sound self-referential, but I try every time I speak to talk about my brokenness or my vulnerability in the present. And that might, that might be around food or overspending or uh, you know, my bipolar disorder or something like that. And contrary to the idea that I'll feel shame, uh, that, that people are responsive to that and people come out of the woodwork and they say, wow, I thought I was the only one. I think vulnerability is something that uh, is, is references the past, as you said, references something that happened 20 years ago, 25 years ago. We've all got skeletons in our closet. Uh, I hear sermons from pastors where they talk about, oh, back in the day we had marital problems or I had a sex addiction. Uh, one of my commitments, last two places where I've served in a church in San Francisco and then now here in Holland, Michigan, in the first uh, week that I've been there, that I was that I started, I sat down with some of the key people and I said, this is how I will hurt you and disappoint you. And I sort of put it out there. And what's interesting is 
they came back to me and they said, oh, no, 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 you won't do that. You've, you're a counselor. Uh, you've done work on your life. And I said, I guarantee you, this is how I will hurt you and disappoint you. So that when you, when you experience that, here's permission to come to me and tell me how you experienced it. And let's have a conversation. And inevitably, you know, a, a week later, a month later, you know, six months later, hey, Chuck, can we, can we talk? And they start telling me about how they experienced me. You were distant. Remember when you told me that you, I'd experienced you as distant? Well, you know, for the last week or two, I've experienced you as distant. And I keep thinking it's me, but I'm wondering, maybe it is you. <laughs> and I'll say, yeah, it is me. And here we go. Let's talk about how I impact you. And, and that's, that's vulnerability. That, that's dealing with it in the present. That's recognizing that is, for as much work as we've done, I turned 50 this year. I know you're slightly older than me. Uh, for as much as work as we've done in therapy over the years, uh, our stuff is still right there at the surface uh, often. And so we've got to reckon with that in relationships. Yeah, I like to say that I have single-handedly kept the mental health profession in business. Yeah, I mean, you're far more, you're far worse than me, Michael. I, I'm definitely more screwed up than you, and I saw yeah. more yeah. of myself in your book. Let me <laughs> come back to what you said when you started the church. I, you know, that idea of, here's all the things that are wrong with me. And let me just tell you in advance, I can see how that would be for some people kind of a coping strategy or defense mechanism to actually push people away. Yeah. The powerful thing that you talked about is that there's then an invitation to speak yeah. into your life. And, yeah. and the narcissist never lets anybody speak into their life or in, in some cases uh, they may actually have that as part of their narcissism, but it kind of deflects off. Yeah. It's terribly threatening. And that's not to say that it's not threatening for me, and I'm sure it's not threatening that it's not threatening for you. I mean, I when people come to me and they they uh, they're preparing themselves to share it with me, there's always a little something in me that says, "Ah, oh, now here we go." I feel my defenses rise up. The thing with the narcissist is that they are so defended that any pushback is a sign of disloyalty, um, and they will push you away as a result of it. Uh, I know uh, I know people who worked for narcissistic pastors who were the, they were number twos or number threes who were in until they offered the slightest pushback. They'll say to me, all I did, Chuck, was raise a question about this little thing here, and I'm out now. What happened? They're so defended. They're so protected. I want to transition to the idea of change because you are one of a handful of people that I know and we have a we have a pretty similar approach to therapy and transformation, right. um, but a lot of people believe that if you're working with a narcissist, they can't change, right. and that it's impossible. And I want to just share a little story that that happened to me recently. And to my knowledge, uh, I don't have narcissistic personality disorder, but I know I have those features. I'm somewhere on the continuum. Yeah. So somebody said, "Hey, can I get some time with you?" And I sensed that it was. Um, you know, one of these conversations where they were going to indeed speak into my life. And so I, I went to a friend and I just said, um, will you pray for me? Because my heart races and my mouth gets dry as I think about this conversation. And sure enough, the person with great kindness and great humility shared with me some things. And, and one of them was in this situation, uh, I experienced you as not being humble. And my reaction internally was so different 
And I think it was because uh, of some of the work that I've done and some of the healing, but my reaction internally and in response was, yeah, I wasn't very humble. Um, Or uh, let's have a conversation about that. Tell me, tell me more. Um, And that felt so liberating. Yeah. I think part of the gift of doing this work of knowing yourself is not that you, you won't screw up because we will, uh, we'll show up uh, arrogantly. uh, I'll show up distantly, whatever it looks like. It's that it's not a surprise to us anymore when we do. And so when folks come to us and they share that, it's like, yeah, I I don't doubt it. Uh, It's not surprising to me. And so let's talk about it. Let's talk about my impact on you. Uh, that, that piece of it for me is really important. And, uh, you know, you and I think both have been influenced by Dan Allender. Dan talks a lot about the, the normal sinner versus the foolish sinner versus, versus the evil or sinister sinner, right? And he says, normal sinners still screw up. They still blow it, but they're self-aware. They know it. Uh, they see it. They're willing to hear it and they'll repent of it. Um, you've seen me illustrate this, I believe, but that idea of expecting ourselves to struggle with sin, not to give ourselves permission, yeah. but I, I will often share the story about how in one of my darkest and worst moments um, in an addiction that that I had a, a spiritual vision and Jesus showed up in this moment and his arm was around me. And while I was just covered in shame and humiliation he just nodded his head and said, of course, of course. There there was no expectation that he had for me to not struggle with that. And it was that, that of course, and that embrace that, that began to really set me free and allow healing to happen. So talk about what you say in the book is going (laughs) below the waterline to have this healing begin to, to happen. Your story reminds me of of sitting with Roger Shepard for five years and whenever I brought another story to Roger Shepard, he always had this look of, of delight. He, he had this big smile on his face, and he'd be nodding his head. I'd, I'd expect to be scolded, but it was his, uh, his affirmation of my humanity in a sense. Like, I'm not surprised by that, Chuck. Um, so let's get to work on it. It's okay. And, and I think that if we have people like that who mirror that kind of love and that kind of grace, we're able to move b- below the waterline. And what I mean by that is that when we stay above the waterline, we put band-aids on soul wounds. You know, we, we simply deal on the level of behavior. And, but when we move below the waterline, we tackle the deeper stuff. We explore the depth of our shadow side. We explore um, the, the, the shame that lurks within uh, the secret rage. Uh, it, it's harder because when we go below the waterline, we start to get into territory that frightens us. Like that can't be true of me. It's true of Michael, but it's not true of me. Uh, we stay above the waterline. Um, we, we can protect ourselves. We put a little bandaid on the wound and say, oh yeah, I screwed up 10 years ago or three years ago. We go the, below the waterline and it's like, oh no, I'm showing up that way right now. Or I'm in shame right now. Or, I'm anxious right now or I'm avoiding right now, that's really the harder work. And so when we go below the waterline, we've got to do the deeper story work. We've got to begin to connect the dots of our story, of our lives. We've got to recognize how trauma inhabits our body, right? We've got to start looking at bodily responses to the everyday occurrences in our life of, of anxiety and pain. 
So you talk in the book and we'll, we'll wrap up on this. And then I hope to have a conversation with you. That's a part two about the, uh, the nine faces of narcissism where you correspond each of the nine Enneagram numbers to narcissism. But you discuss in the book narcissistic systems, and you say that we all swim in the waters of narcissism. So specifically in the church, what does a narcissistic system look like? Yeah, that's good. That's important. One of the problems that I've seen, and this has just come from doing consulting work with churches over the years, is that uh, the expectation is if, if you remove a narcissistic leader from a church, you've removed the problem. And what I have to remind them of, and this often takes a lot of work and work that they avoid doing often, churches avoid doing, is I invite them to take a look at how this has become a part of the system now, a a sort of toxin within the system that's invisible. These narcissistic dynamics within systems are are often invisible. They sort of grow over time. When, When I'm doing this kind of work, even if we remove a narcissistic leader, I've got to talk about the, the trauma that remains and how we still, we still sort of do the dance around one another. We're still sizing one another up. We're still avoiding, defending, um, self-protecting. That, that takes a lot more time. Uh, to root it out in a system is, is a whole lot more difficult. Uh, and that involves a whole group of people owning their uh, complicity in it. Uh, not to say that they're narcissistic, but they're somehow complicit in the, a dynamic within a system I've seen this, by the way, with large Christian organizations and churches where uh, and it, you know, an entire staff will talk about how God has blessed this particular church and our model of evangelism and our program and our uh, curriculum and all these different kinds of things. And they'll size themselves or they'll compare themselves to other churches. Like, you know, we're, we're so much more special than that church or what we offer is so much more unique than the church down the road. Um, that's where I see narcissism sort of embodied within a system. And, and wow, our culture at large, which your book has implications for, and of course, as the, the individual heals, the church heals, yeah. as the system heals, that impacts culture. But uh, novelty and uniqueness and wanting to find someone who is up there, who has the way, who has the answer, mm-hmm. it just lends itself to that. And consumerism, individualism. We're recording this at the time of a global pandemic, you know, and uh, we are, at least where I am right now, restricted. Schools are closed and pubs are closed and restaurants are closed and stores are closed and freedom is limited. And people are beginning to, to grasp the reality that I can't go out and do what I, I did. I feel entitled to do what I ordinarily do, go out and get my nitro coffee. That's what I do every morning, you know. And so it's exposing our latent narcissism uh, in ourselves and in our culture right now. Chuck, thank you for writing this book, uh, for the 20 years that went into it, for the labor that went into it. Um, And my hope and prayer is that this book spreads through leadership so that uh, more healing happens. So I look forward to part two of the conversation. Thank you, friend. So we've wrapped up another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. In fact, the heart of what we have done for nearly 20 years is intensive counseling. When you can't wait months or years to get out of the rut you're in, our intensive counseling programs in Colorado allow you to experience deep change 
in half-day blocks over two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com. Thank you.